0: Our scripture today is from 2 Kings, the first 14 verses of chapter 5, the story of Naaman. I have never preached or taught this story before, and it's great. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though, a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now, the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him. Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. This morning in the AJC, there was an article about my hometown of Doraville. Doraville, just a few exits north of here on 85, where Melissa and I grew up. And according to the article, Doraville has been kind of overlooked in this uh, new surge in Atlanta. But the article said Doraville may be getting its due after all. Some construction is beginning now. But my parents moved to Doraville in 1972, and they were there at the first surge of Doraville's development. They were a young married couple, had three young children. I am the oldest of three, and I was about to enter the fourth grade. And Doraville at that time was new starter homes, neighborhoods are beginning. It was the outer ring of suburban life in Atlanta. Uh, Almost all of Gwinnett County was still rural, and the growth of Atlanta had gotten out to about durable. My parents uh, bought in the Oak Cliff community, which is about a half a mile outside the perimeter, and people couldn't believe we lived that far out of town. Way out outside. The perimeter was three years old at the time, and we lived outside it. And from what I remember of Dorival's diversity in those days, I had one African-American classmate, her name's Jackie Goodman, and Jackie's growth spurt happened before mine. And in middle school, I had to stand on a chair to do the bump with her at the dance. (laughs) Anybody my age remember the bump? Jimmy Walker was Catholic. Donnie Boker was Presbyterian. That's about it. That was was diversity in Dorval, Georgia in the 1970s, as I remember it. Melissa lived about two miles down Buford Highway from me. And in our dating days, I would make that trip down Buford Highway, driving past restaurants like Murray's Subs and Ken's Pizza and Sandwich and Stuff in the Northwoods Plaza. Today, you know, that region has totally changed. That part of Buford Highway is now referred to as the Buhai District of Atlanta. And if I made that same trip today from the house I grew up to Melissa's house in Dorville, it would take me by Sokong Dong Tofu House, Rincon Lantino, and Mamak. Sandwich and stuff is gone, in case you're wondering we live in a totally different Atlanta. The people in the aisles of Kroger look about the same as the people who were wandering the bazaar in Istanbul when I was there a few years ago. And the Buford Highway restaurants look like the lunchroom at the United Nations building. We live among every culture and every religious tradition and it can sometimes be hard to know how to best represent our faith in a multi-faith Atlanta. Well, I love the model in today's story. But besides being a tale of, cultural, of a cultural outsider, it's this great story with all of these paradoxes of power in it. Naaman, great warrior, commander of the army of Aram, which is modern-day Syria. He's admired, favored by the king, but sadly he suffers from leprosy and his wife seems to have pity on him and proposes a way that he might be healed. Now, I'm using air quotes on wife here because they were not exactly high school sweethearts with a June wedding. She was a spoil of war. Human trafficking has a long history. She was captured during the last battle between Aram and Israel. She must have been highly desirable because she's kept in the home of the great commander Naaman. The story does not give her a name. She would have been considered property, powerless. So why bother with a name? So wife tells the woman that she serves, if my Lord were to go see the Jewish prophet in my home country... He could cure Naaman of that leprosy. I just know it. So Naaman tells the king about going to the sea, the king uh, going to Israel. And the king says, let's give it a try. So he sends Naaman to the land of the Israelites with a letter of introduction, chariots full of outrageous gifts equal to about what a 100 people would earn in a year. Horses and chariots and attendants and gifts and official palace visit to the king. He hands the letter to the king of Israel. And the king reads it. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king freaks out. He thinks this is a trap. He thinks it's a trick, a provocation for war. He thinks if he doesn't come through for the neighbor king, who's got a much bigger army, then it's going to be enough to provoke war. He will surely lose. He is going out of his mind. But when Elisha, the prophet that the wife had mentioned, hears about the king's distress, he gets a message to the king and says, send Naaman to me. Well, let me stop for a minute. Are you already catching some of the paradox of power that I mentioned before? The king of Aram has all kinds of money and power, but he's no help at all with the leprosy. Naaman is this celebrated military commander, successful military, respect of the king. He has no power against the leprosy. The king of Israel is at home in his palace, scared out of his wits. And the ones in the story who provoke the healing are a slave girl and now an itinerant prophet. Naaman arrives to Elisha's house, horses, chariots, all the trappings of his importance, and Elisha sends word out by messenger to Naaman and his entourage. Elisha says, You should go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. And now Naaman is furious. He's traveled all this way for a healing. All of these attendants, he's got a fortune of, in gifts. They've trekked all across the countryside. Long, long time away from home, hot, rugged sand trails. He finally gets to the end of this pilgrimage, and he's told to go take a bath. Naaman cries out, I could have stayed home and washed in our rivers. And our rivers are better than your rivers are anyway. He's hot. And I mean, it's easy to understand. I mean, can you imagine if you took a month off of work because you had a skin disease and you flew to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota? Month off of work, you've got the family settled in an apartment in Rochester. You've gone to all this trouble and expense. You've taken the kids out of school. You've gotten a neighbor to feed the dog. You take your overnight bag to check into the hospital for your one month stay, and the nurse says, the check in nurse says, Oh, it's you. The doctor said if you came by to just let you know to fill this prescription for an ointment and you can go home. Use it as directed, it should take care of your problem. The self important warrior leaves in a rage. He has had. It. He went to all this trouble and he's told to go take a bath. And his servants pulled him aside and said, you were prepared for something difficult. You you were prepared for a month in the Mayo Clinic. You expected this to be a really big deal. Why not try the prophet's simple prescription? I mean, we're here anyway. So the entourage makes its way down to the Jordan River. Naaman immerses himself seven times as directed, and the Bible records that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. That's just a great story anyway, you got it. It's a story of upside-down power. Those who should be in the know, two powerful kings, they appear clueless. And the actors who make a difference in this story are an unnamed slave girl who is the herald of power and the presence of God and a Jewish prophet who never gets off the sofa and a a soldier who finally finds the humility to follow the counsel of an Israeli holy person he doesn't even believe in. So what has all of this got to do with living in a multicultural Atlanta? Well, I I skipped that part on my first pass through the story. So let's, let's go back through. Naaman is from Aram, which is modern Syria. He's an ethnic foreigner, outsider. He ain't from around here. More than that, he is not a follower of the God of Israel. He does not believe or follow Yahweh, the covenant God of the Jewish people. But he gets healed anyway. Elisha, the faith leader, the prophet of God, the representative of the tradition, offers healing to a man who does not share his faith. He crosses the boundaries of culture and religious difference to be an agent of healing in this man's life. It might be that back in the back of his mind, his own religious teachings on this matter were playing in his head. It might have informed his response to other cultures. Because in the book of Leviticus, it says... When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Elisha does just that. And he sends him to the river Jordan to find healing. And why the river Jordan of all places? Well, in the 34th chapter of the book of Numbers, the Jordan River is established as a border on the promised land. The Jordan separates Israel from neighbors. And Elisha has used this symbol of cultural separation as a place of restoration and healing. God's love for all people transcends. The Jordan River is reinterpreted, no longer a natural border of cultural separation, but a place where God's prophet creates healing for an outsider who happens to be suffering. This is the model. For how we treat the religious or cultural other. We are to be agents of God's healing and grace. We are to welcome the stranger. I am vexed by a cultural tendency to treat the stranger as enemy, threat. Political otherness, religious otherness, cultural otherness are often not treated as opportunities for hospitality. That is an opportunity, a chance to love the stranger as you love yourself. And if a modern-day Syrian comes to the people of God in our Atlanta churches in need of healing, I worry that he might not be treated in the model of Elisha's care. Our story today, our reading, ended in verse 14. But in the very next verse, Naaman becomes a convert. In verse 15, Naaman says, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. But, but God's healing and Elisha's care Happened before verse 15. Naaman was treated like a love child of God before Naaman even knew he was a love child of God. That is our response. That is our faith response to a pluralistic Atlanta. We don't have to water down our own convictions or our theological distinctives to treat every person like a loved child of God, even if they don't yet know they are a loved child of God. I mentioned that hospitality was one of the models of the Hebrew scriptures. But Jesus models this too. That's no surprise. When people of other cultures would come into Jesus' path, whether they were from Samaria or Seraphim or Canaan or Rome, Jesus speaks to their personhood, their need. He sees the image of God that lives within them and embodies God's love that crosses all boundaries. For instance, you know that the Canaanites lived up near Lebanon, uh, worshiped Baal with a multitude of other deities, But when Jesus was in the region of Tyre and Sidon and a woman who was probably a Baal worshiper from Beirut. When she shouted and appealed for healing mercy for her daughter. Jesus healed her. He healed the little girl. Jonathan Sachs says, the supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. That's worth repeating. The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. The theological statement in today's story is, of course, the scandalous backbeat that thumps throughout all of Scripture, which is God's outrageous love for all of humankind and God's work to reclaim creation through love. But there is also up front, in the melody of this story, there is this beautiful example of how we might wear our faith in a multicultural, multi-religious Atlanta. And it's wildly impractical. And it even seems out of step with some other church's response. But I can't find or support any other biblical model. We participate in Naaman's healing even if he is not one of us. And we train ourselves to see everybody as made in God's image. To see God's image in one who is not made in our image. And our solution is to treat every person like a loved child of God, even if they do not know they are a loved child of God. And in that process, we might get healed too. God's love is more boundless and more scandalous than we can imagine. How will you step one step closer to living out that love in the world? Would you consider that as we stand and sing together? Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Pontstallian Baptist Church.